You are listening to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote, with Rabbi Jesse Olitsky and friends, a Jcast Network podcast. For more information about this and other Jcast Network podcasts, please visit jcastnetwork.org. And don't forget to vote. Welcome to Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote. I'm your host, Rabbi Jesse Olitsky of Congregation Bethel in South Orange, New Jersey. We know that the Jewish vote and the Jewish voter is not monolithic, that there are many issues at stake in November's upcoming election on the local, state, and federal level, which impact the American Jewish community. And we spend this podcast series focusing each episode on a different issue, exploring the Jewish texts, teachings, ethics, and values, which may impact the decision of the Jewish voter with regards to that issue. Election day is not only near, election day is here with millions already having cast their votes through early voting going on in states across the nation and through mail-in voting um, in my state of New Jersey. I've sent my ballot back uh, two weeks ago. Millions have already voted. And this issue in this week's episode of Behind the Ballot Box, Jewish Values and Our Vote, we focus on healthcare. What is at risk? in November's election, what is at stake, and an especially important issue when healthcare is on all of our minds as we're in the middle of a once-in-a-lifetime pandemic that we are all experiencing. And to guide our conversation today, I'm ecstatic to speak with Rabbi Leonard Scharzer, MD, uh, to give us perspective from a medical perspective and from a Jewish perspective on really what is at stake in the Jewish community's views of healthcare. Rabbi Scharzer is the Associate Director for Bioethics Emeritus of the Finkelstein Institute of Religious and Social Studies at the Jewish Theological Seminary of America. His current research is in the field of bioethics, especially as it pertains to Jewish law. He's a graduate from the Boston University School of Medicine and completed residency training in general surgery at the University of Iowa. He also completed a residency in plastic surgery at the Eastern Virginia Graduate School of Medicine in Norfolk, Virginia. And in 1978, moved to New York to join the faculty of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine. He retired from medical practice in 1999 to enter the rabbinical school at JTS where he was ordained in May of 2003. Hi, Len, thanks for joining us for this conversation today. Very pleased to be with you. Thank you for asking. So I want us to begin with really what is on all of our minds and has been on our minds for the past six months. We're in the middle of this pandemic. Uh, over 7 million Americans have tested positive for COVID-19, and that's not even counting those who uh, may have had this coronavirus and because they were asymptomatic, not tested at all, and may have spread it. Um, over 200,000 deaths in our country as a result. Synagogues across the country are grappling with how to respond, how do we meet our needs. There are many synagogues that are still totally virtual. Some synagogues have begun doing in-person gatherings uh, outdoors. Some have begun in-person. If you're in part of the country, like where we reside, that it's starting to get colder, uh, are exploring in-person indoor gatherings um, for worship services, for life cycle events. What, how should the Jewish community respond as we wrestle with meeting community needs and understanding that this virus is still very much here. Uh, numbers have spiked now at the end of October compared to where we were in August. What is our responsibility as a Jewish community? I think the first principles we have to remember is that in Jewish bioethics or Jewish medically related issues, there are a few, really very few, foundational beliefs. The first is that we are created B'Tselem Elohim. We are created in God's image. And there is 
almost ultimate value to human life. In addition, we uh, adhere to the principle of kvot habriot, human dignity, personal dignity. All this leads to the notion that pikuach nefesh, saving a life, protecting a life, and by extension, protecting health, is the major and primary goal we have to be thinking about. So when synagogues specifically, as you mentioned, or other Jewish communal institutions are dealing with our very real needs as human beings for human interaction, social interaction, that life-saving and life protection and health protection become of the highest value. And I would have to say that most of the synagogues that I know of, the rabbis that I've been in touch with, are making the decisions about whether to be fully virtual, whether to be some kind of hybrid uh, virtual functioning combined with in-person functioning or how to do in-person functioning, are doing it with the guidance of medical professionals. I mean, we recognize, I mean, we have to say as Jews and as rabbis that we recognize and accept the value of preservation of human life. And we have to ask medical experts how we do that. What is safe and what is not safe? And we do what is safe and we don't do what is not safe. Um, I would say also, and we can explore this further uh, uh, if you want, that where most discussions about healthcare in the United States, especially the issues that have been raised in connection with the election, and I think specifically with the democratic primary process where there was talk about Medicare for all and improving uh, the Affordable Care Act and so forth, that Jewish discourse in this area speaks the language of responsibility and obligation rather than the language of rights. And so much of what we hear in the United States is the language of rights. You know, the, um, Healthcare is a human right, it's a civil right. And while I wouldn't argue with that, uh, rights are in essence the reciprocal side of obligation. If I have an obligation towards you, then you have that right vis-a-vis uh, -vis me for me to behave in a certain way. So often these kinds of discussions will get us to the same place, but Jewishly, we get there through the notion of obligation. Now, when we're talking about obligation and responsibility in connection with something like the pandemic that we're experiencing, there are many levels of obligation. There's a personal level of obligation. We have an obligation to keep ourselves healthy, to do that which keeps us healthy, whether that means wearing masks, whether that means avoiding uh, crowded situations. We have a second level in relation to family or families have an obligation toward each other and towards the outside world. But the community at large has obligations and um, that may either be the same as or contiguous with governmental obligations. So govern, government had an obligation to be prepared for this. They, they had been told by experts, our government had been told by experts for years that this was a possibility that something like this may be, might be coming. 
and our government was woefully unprepared. Right, as a result of, of the, the swine flu um, episode that uh, the Obama administration actually founded an office um, specifically to address epidemics um, that uh, the Trump administration had um, cut that office and cut that role in the West Wing when uh, Trump was inaugurated because he thought it was unnecessary. Yes, that, that's, that's absolutely correct. And uh, even um, separate and apart from the notion of being prepared, once the pandemic struck, there are certain responsibilities on the behalf of government that no individual person, no individual physician, no hospital group have the capacity to locate or produce the equipment that was necessary. I mean, New York, uh, as you know, was hit first and hardest of most of the states in the country and was uh, in danger of running out of ICU beds and running out of ventilators and running out of PPE. And those are the kinds of obligations that can only be filled at a central level. What do we do with the idea that um, focusing on what you just said about government responsibility and obligation with the idea that so much of what we talk about in this world um, is seen as partisan, um, that every issue you're either for it or against it. There seems to be no consensus. And believe it or not, the same seems to be true with a pandemic that has killed over 200,000 Americans, um, that when you look at our presidential candidates, you have um, Vice President Biden, who wears a mask all the time uh, in public, indoors and outdoors, and is really limiting the size of the crowds he speaks to. Um, and President Trump, who even since testing positive for COVID-19, uh, chooses to not wear a mask and just this past week has had large rallies, which epidemiologists fear could be super spreader events. That's certainly a big concern. It's a concern in the medical profession and um, in in the political establishment as well, I think. But you're onto something, I believe, when you talk about um, a seemingly unbridgeable divide between the polar sides in most political debates in this country and certainly in the um, in dealing with this pandemic. Because as I mentioned, we Jewishly speak the language of responsibility and obligation, but the personal responsibility we talk about is one that is combined with a sense of communal responsibility and obligation. Uh, you know, we'd say, if I'm not going to be for myself, who will be for me? But what use am I if I'm only for myself? This is different from the, what I would call the American frontier mentality of personal responsibility in the sense of rugged individualism. You know, I will take care of myself. I'm responsible for myself, and if I don't want to wear a mask, I won't wear a mask. It's on me. It's my responsibility. Without sharing that communal sense of an obligation to the people you're around as well. So I think that plays into a lot of the disagreements we have in our society, and it certainly goes beyond the pandemic and beyond healthcare. Uh, it, it's true in many areas of life in this country. Still focusing on the pandemic and, and this um, unprecedented time for all of us, 
I want to ask you about the role that Pekuach Nefesh plays, this uh, notion, this halachic notion of saving a life that supersedes all other mitzvot. We're told that Pekuach Nefesh Doche Shabbat, that in order to save a life, we are actually, you use the word obligation, we're obligated to break Shabbat and our observance of Shabbat. Um, but I also understand that what it means to save a life is subjective. That in many uh, halachic texts, the rabbis are very literal. Uh, the Mishnah focuses, I believe, on um, if there is a building that has been destroyed, that you are able to remove bricks if you see a body underneath to see if that person is alive, if that means on that moment on Shabbat, would you normally wouldn't be able to remove bricks, you're obligated to, to help that person breathe to save their life. We often use that in this notion, uh, in this moment, that pekoach nefesh means we avoid gathering in large crowds. Pekoach nefesh means that in our own community, we will use technology on Shabbat in a way that we previously wouldn't have because we want to avoid large in-person gatherings, that sort of thing. How would you say Pekuach Nefesh plays into our obligation and responsibility specifically during this pandemic? That I would say that Pekuach Nefesh, saving a life or protecting a life is an obligation that supersedes virtually all other mitzvot. I mean, the Shabbat, as you gave the example, is a very good one. And that uh, passage in Masachat Yoma about the building that has fallen down, we're obligated, even if we don't know if there's a body under there, if we don't know that anyone's buried, to remove all the rubble till we see if there is. And even if you find people who have died you're still obligated to keep digging because maybe underneath is somebody who is still alive and capable of being saved, even if that person is so injured that they can only remain alive for a few minutes, we're still obligated to uh, protect and save that life. What you're asking though, I think, is how we balance that obligation against um, our other obligations slash desires. So for example, we could say it is unsafe to be in crowds and it um, is unsafe to be within what, so many feet of another person without wearing a mask. So one could say, well, sorry, we're not going to have any sort of communal prayer. We're not going to have in-person services. We're not going to use technology. You know, stay home, pray by yourself in a safe way and preserve life. But we would like to, if we could, if we can find a way, balance the protection of life, pikuach nefesh, always keeping that foremost and finding other ways to um, nourish the spiritual life of the individual or the community with, uh, through virtual services or um, other, other means. I want us to shift gears, um, if that's okay. You, you mentioned this earlier. Uh, to talk about two things that are really, uh, I think, at stake with this upcoming election. First is the future of the Affordable Care Act. And the second, as you mentioned, is something that was talked a lot about in the Democratic Party's presidential primary process, the idea of Medicare for all, the idea of a government-run universal health care program. Um, so first, with uh, the Affordable Care Act, uh, which... Um, Days after the election, the Supreme Court will be um, hearing a case. Uh, I believe it's uh, Texas versus California, uh, which, um, depending on how the Supreme Court votes, could essentially end 
the Affordable Care Act. It will end uh, insurance companies and insurance agencies' obligation, using that word again, to uh, provide affordable insurance to people with pre-existing conditions, to provide insurance for young adults who are still on their parents' health care plans. There, there's a text that, that Tzitz Eliezer um, and uh, Rabbi Eliezer Waldenberg's halachic work talks of focusing on what the Shulchan Aruch says, concludes that our first priority is to care for the sick. And as a result, from a funding perspective, from a money perspective, says that actually we must prioritize our communal funds to care for the sick over other obligations, including building a synagogue, that putting money towards caring for the sick actually is more of a priority than anything else that we do. Uh, I'm choosing to use this halakhic stance and translating it to, to a more societal stance that monies towards healthcare based on the Tzitz Eliezer would be more of a priority over anything else. Uh, I'm wondering how you would look at this as a doctor and a rabbi and what's at stake with the future of the Affordable Care Act. That's a lot of questions. So <laughs> I would say that I would agree with the notion that our highest priority is for society to provide the means to take care of those who are sick uh, and to uh, provide uh, the wherewithal uh, to protect those who might become sick. That I would say that I agree that that takes precedence over other societal obligations, but I would add that we must then construe health more broadly. So we would have to include things like uh, providing clean air and clean water, which is not strictly taking care of the sick, but is providing for the health of the nation. So uh, I think we, we would have to include those kinds of functions uh, in the a broad understanding of health. Now, as to the Supreme Court case and what is going to happen to the Affordable Care Act, of course, we don't know. Uh, we don't know uh, who will be elected, and we don't know what the Supreme Court will decide. Um, one would hope that there would be a recognition that so many people and so many families have gained so much that uh, we are no longer in the situation of those people who wanted to repeal the Affordable Care Act a year after it was decided, that now there are clear benefits to people that would be taken away. And uh, the government and the court ought to be very careful about removing um, advantages that people have come to count on in terms of their health. Um, that said, we don't know, as I said, how the Supreme Court will decide. While Medicare was broached as um, an ideal to pursue in the Democratic primary, and I think is supported by many in the Democratic Party. Uh, I think for some, the objection to it was more a political than an actual one. In other words, it might not be a winning political position, whether or not 
in terms of healthcare, it was a good idea. I think we should also admit that the system of healthcare we have in this country, if we were starting from ground zero, if we were starting from a fresh point, we had a country with all these people and all these needs right. and had no health system, we would never establish the health system that we have, never. So the, the main problem that I see it, as I said, is political with a something like government paid single payer system, whether it's Medicare, Medicare for all or something like that, is that there are in this society those who benefit from the private insurance system that we have and nobody wants to give up what they have. That's true with the Affordable Care Act. People get, whether through their job or uh, very good insurance and health coverage, they don't want to have to give that up so that there will be something better for those who have less. Right. So one of the criticisms of Obamacare from uh, opponents who, who wanted to get rid of it was that the promise that you could keep your doctors was not necessarily true. And they had to give that up. They had to give up the health care that they were comfortable with. Yes. And they also, whether you could, if you like your insurance, you could keep it. But most of the time they like that those people like that insurance because it was very cheap but it was not very effective and it didn't pay for very much right and it weren't very good policies but you know people had something and they knew what it was and they wanted to keep it ironically it may be the case that if the supreme court does strike down the affordable care act next month that there will be a major push on the part of our population for something like Medicare for all. It, it may be just, you know, we say they, they, back in 2010, they couldn't get a public option onto the legislation because the situation wasn't bad enough for everybody. It was bad for a lot of people, but it was good for a lot of people too. Once the ACA is struck down, it will be really bad for everybody. Do you think and, that's especially true because of the impact of this pandemic and that you have millions of people who tested positive of COVID-19 that could very much be labeled of having a pre-existing condition? I think so. Yeah, I think... Uh, I mean, we know that people who recover from COVID-19 have residual medical problems. And what the uh, future is for people who test positive without uh, severe disease, we have no idea. And that, and once there's no guardrails on the insurance companies, they have an incentive to label as many people as possible with a pre-existing condition. So, so repealing or striking it down in court may be just the impetus that is needed for society or American society to push towards the kind of single payer system that most countries in the um, developed world have. Yeah, I find it really fascinating that most other countries in the developed world have um, a single payer system, um, have government run health care. Um, America focuses really on the privatized nature of healthcare. Not that one has to do with the other, um, but it also is ironic that in this pandemic, the U.S. makes up 4% of the world's population and 20% of the world's deaths, um, COVID-19. And maybe I think there are many things with regards to Pekoach Nefesh, saving a life, that the United States could do differently. Um, going back to this idea of Medicare for all, do you think, how do you think Judaism, I know we are sometimes weary of um, putting Jewish legal perspectives 
as conclusions of societal practice. Although as rabbis, right, that's the only area I'm an expert on, uh, if you could call me an expert at all, is on the Jewish perspective. I'm not an expert on other perspectives. Um, what would Judaism say about the idea of governmental health care, about Medicare for all, for example? Most of the sources come from a time when medicine wasn't as technological or as expensive as it is now. And people lived in uh, small, isolated kihilot. You know, they didn't have a national um, sense of belonging like we do today. So all we can extrapolate I think, is that most of these communities felt it was their obligation to make sure there was a doctor for the community. Many of the Kihilot would hire doctors, and the doctors then had the responsibility of providing care for the people of that community. So in that uh, medieval or perhaps somewhat later period, a physician was healthcare. We weren't talking about MRIs or other fancy expensive devices. Or hospital systems and networks. Right. Uh, so I think the, we can say that the community felt it was their responsibility to make sure that there was available health care for the members of that community. So I don't think there's anything about uh, Medicare for all or any uh, government uh, system that you'd find anything Jewishly to be opposed to. I mean, Look at the state of Israel. That's uh, a single-payer government-sponsored system. It exists alongside a private system, but the the primary health care is through um, the government system. Absolutely. When I was a student there for my for my uh, Israel year, when I was at JTS and studying in Israel, and got insurance there, it was a dollar a day. Right. And I was just say one other thing. Um, one of the advantages of getting older is I remember I was a medical student or an intern when um, President Johnson was proposing Medicare and Medicaid legislation as part of the Great Society. And Medicare, which is now revered and venerated by everybody in the government, out of the government, people, you know, in all walks of life, that was very much opposed. Uh, people would talk about Medicare around the hospital as if it was the devil's own instrument. How can we do this? And I think it relates to our general sense of discomfort with anything new. And yes, Medicare for all, uh, government takeover, all these frightening terms, it wouldn't take very long for people to get used to a new system and, um, and make it work for them. I appreciate that. I think it also speaks to, uh, right, when you just a few moments ago quoted Heschel on saying this balance of uh, right, of looking out for myself, but not only looking out for myself, I need to look out for others. I think for many people, we are selfish. And I don't mean that in a mean way. I don't mean that in um, a derogatory way, but we care about ourselves more so than thinking about others. Um, and as a result, uh, we say healthcare works for me right now. I don't care if it's not working for other people. But those who are saying healthcare works for me right now are often those who 
have the benefit and luxury of overall being healthy or being at an age and in a demographic, living in a part of the community and the country that doesn't deal with certain um, health issues that other parts of the country may have, right? They're not living in a part of the country that deals with pollution as much as other parts of the country. They're not living in the parts of the country that doesn't have uh, healthy drinking water, clean water that is causing health issues. And so they may be opposing any changes to healthcare, not because it works for them right now, but because they don't need access to it as much right now as they may at a different time in their lives or if they were to live in a different part of the country. Um, and I think that access is also really important. Um, that's the reason why before the Affordable Care Act, many adults chose to not have health insurance at all um, because they worried they couldn't afford it. And they said, this is not worth spending money on because we don't have anybody in our family with chronic illness right now or anybody in our family that is fighting a potentially terminal illness right now. Um, one of the big issues with the Affordable Care Act that those who disagree with it really fought against was the personal mandate. The idea that uh, in order to make sure private insurance companies offered affordable health insurance to those with pre-existing conditions, the Affordable Care Act required everybody to have health insurance. Um, and through um, the healthcare exchange, right, offered affordable health insurance to all. Uh, that case was brought to the Supreme Court that the personal mandate uh, was illegal and the Supreme Court in 2012 upheld it. Chief Justice Roberts upheld it. It was only in December of 2017 that the, uh, the Congress, a Republican controlled House and Senate got rid of the personal mandate uh, and Trump signed that into law shortly after that. I'm wondering when we talk about obligation and responsibility, where does each person fall with regards to that responsibility? Do we have, according to Jewish law and perspective, a responsibility to have health insurance so that one, we are not using the emergency room as our primary care physician and thus using more tax dollars potentially for our own health care? And are we without having health insurance, are we not being proactive about taking care of ourselves and the health of our families? Are we thus only being reactive? There are a couple of things I think to say in response to your questions. Um, the first is that we should recognize that the argument that you just cited that some people make about not uh, uh, purchasing health insurance or not uh, wanting to participate in this is a statement that comes from a place of extreme privilege. Whether it's the privilege of where we live, the privilege of age, the privilege of health, and there are those who don't share that. And um, we know that there are uh, systemic societal inequalities that render certain communities more susceptible to uh, illness of various types. The second thing I would say is that the argument, even from a selfish standpoint, is very short-sighted because we know that anyone who gets sick, anyone who is hit by a car, anyone who has an acute medical problem who presents themselves at an emergency room gets taken care of. Whether or not they have insurance, whether or not 
there in this country legally, whether or not anything. And, and by law, the hospital must accept and take care of these patients. And doctors take a Hippocratic oath to do so. Yes, yes. And I mean, most doctors want to. I mean, that is what they've devoted their lives to. But because, it, or if those people presenting at the, at the emergency room don't have health insurance, their care becomes exceedingly expensive. And that money ends up being paid by those people who do have insurance. So even those people who say, you know, I don't want to be mandated to buy this, or I don't want to be required to do that, they end up paying through, they end up paying for other people who come and do need the care because the hospital ends up spreading out the, um, the cost and ultimately it comes from the government and ultimately we pay the government whether it's in taxes or whatever. So we end up, I would say we, those who have insurance end up paying for the care of all those who don't in a very inefficient and inexpensive way. And for someone who would have the means, if it's through an exchange or um, uh, some other method to acquire insurance, who chooses not to, because they say, oh, I live a healthy life, I eat well, I exercise, I do whatever, they are being irresponsible. They're being both irresponsible to themselves and they're being irresponsible to the community in which they live. And that is precisely the kind of communal responsibility that I think Judaism teaches us we must have. There are um, two last texts that I wanna ask you about and get your take on. Um, one is one of my favorite teachings from, from the Talmud uh, that I often use to humble rabbis because uh, some of us rabbis uh, admit that uh, uh, we have egos. Um, and it's a teaching from Masechetanit uh, that introduces us to Abba Umana, this surgeon who is credited with saving lives and compares him to Abaya and Rava. Uh, two rabbis who appear throughout the Talmud, often within disagreement, and we, um, right, we, we tend to side with Abaye more than Rava in our Talmudic literature. And what it says is that um, Rava would receive greetings every year on Yom Kippur from the angels on high and from God. But Abaye, whose teachings we side with more than Rava, will receive greetings from God and the celestial beings every week on Erev Shabbat. But Abu Umana, the surgeon who saved lives, will receive these greetings each and every day. And Abaye, in his, with his ego, is upset by this and wants to know why Abu Umana encounters God more frequently than he does, this incredible scholar. And the angels respond to him, that Abaye cannot do what Abba Umana is able to do, referring to save a life. With that in mind, that, that humbling text for, for rabbis to hear, um, how do we prioritize this idea of saving a life and prioritize our support, especially now uh, during a pandemic, our support of frontline healthcare workers and healthcare in general, how do we prioritize that over other things that naturally uh, we would think Jewish community would prioritize? So Abu Mana is a, a wonderful person and it's a very uh, interesting anecdote about him and Abai and Rava. And Abai, as you said, is told that 
uh, Abba gets greetings from on high because he can do what you cannot do. And then it goes on to enumerate this passage, the kinds of things that Abba is getting credit or praise for. And they have to do with the modesty with which he treats his female patients, that he drapes them, covers them up, that um, outside of his place of work in a hidden, in a very private area, he has what's basically his cash box so that he doesn't collect money from anybody. They go outside, they put in what they can put in. If they can't put, afford to put in anything, they don't put in anything. And even if he gets a young scholar who has no money, he tells them to go and take what you need to sustain yourself from this box. So Abba is teaching us a lesson, I think, about human dignity and a respect for individuals and individual needs that in the course of his doing his profession, he comes across, uh, he, he comes in, uh, into situations in which he has many opportunities to exhibit this respect for other human beings, more so than Abaye and Rava do. Because the Talmud, don't forget, has not told us that physicians or surgeons in general get more accolades, more greetings, more respect than rabbis. But this particular one, this man Abba did because he exhibited certain um, values that we think are worth emulating and that his work as a surgeon gives him many opportunities to do this. So I think getting back to your original question that as rabbis, as a Jewish community, um, how do we recognize the incredible work of healthcare professionals in this pandemic? How do we recognize that they are many times putting their lives on the line. And in fact, many, we know many in the healthcare world have died of COVID that they acquired from patients that they took care of, that they are in a special situation because of the contact that they have agreed to have with these patients on our behalf. We, um, in our own congregation, at Congregation Bethel, during the Ela Ezkara, the martyrology service this year on Yom Kippur, um, we focused on those frontline healthcare professionals actually as martyrs and highlighted some of the stories of those who lost their life to COVID-19 uh, because they put their lives at risk to treat COVID-positive patients. Um, exactly that. And I think we need to prioritize the, those healthcare workers, those on the front lines. Um, and certainly, I, I find this uh, text to be humbling that we need to think about how healthcare workers are really being God's messengers, are, are, are truly the malachim, are, are the angels of today doing God's work saving lives and taking care of God's creations. Um, lastly, I wanted to ask you a text that activists often 
um, use and, and throw around and what role it plays in this fight to save healthcare for so many, right? The Vayikra text uh, of not standing idly by our neighbor's bloodshed, text that uh, I often use and, and have on my signs when, when I'm protesting for a cause. Um, how do we respond at this moment, at this crossroads when we said that healthcare for millions is at risk? What is the role of the Jewish community to fight, not just via the ballot box, which I, I think is very much a part of that, uh, but to fight for the protections uh, of so many, the health care for so many? I don't think I can give you um, a prescription for a particular action but I think, in principle, what you say is right on the mark, that not standing idly by doesn't, is not to be taken literally. You know, that there's someone who's bleeding and you don't do anything. It's to look at risks to life, risks to health that are ongoing in society and find a way to do what you can to improve uh, that situation, to advantage the disadvantage and to help the needy and to care for the sick. I'm into that. Well, thank you so much, Len, for this really enlightening conversation. Um, I know that uh, our, our listeners have really benefited from uh, listening and learning from you. Um, as mentioned, there is so much at stake. Um, as this Behind the Ballot Box series soon comes to a close with Election Day, um, really just weeks away. As always, you can follow me on social media, on Twitter, at J-M-O-L-I-T-Z-K-Y to continue this conversation about what role these issues play in the minds of Jewish voters and in November's election. And with election day upon us, vote like your life depends on it because as we've learned from this conversation about healthcare, for many in our country, their lives really do depend on it. Take care, be safe everyone and don't forget to vote.